Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Last week, we began a sermon series through the book of, through the book of Exodus um, called God with us, God with us. And so um, the book of Exodus is a story of God's people. And I think for us um, to understand the, the, the depths of what God has saved us from, um, Exodus will help us in that. And so we're going to journey along through the book of Exodus, not stopping at every chapter and every verse because it's far too long. We've been in all year. Um, but there are certain part, parts of it that we want to highlight and that we want to walk through. And my prayer is that you would read along with, with us and that you would understand and gain an understanding and knowledge of what God has done through his people because their story is not just their story. Their, sto- their story is also our story. Exodus chapter 12. And here's what I want to say at the outset. I want you to pay attention today. All right. I want you to engage deeply with your heart with your mind today. There are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things going on. There's, there are many reasons for you to zone out, but today I want you to pay close attention because I think that God has some pertinent things uh, to say to us this morning through um, the studying of the scriptures this morning. So be active, be alert, be ready, be engaged. I don't want to just preach by myself, but I'm giving you permission today to be a pastor and preach with me. Amen. Amen. So Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 through 13, and it says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families. One animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. Here's what's important. Verse 5. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. Here's another verse that's very important. They must take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel or the doorframe of the houses where they eat. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it. Roast it over the fire. Somebody heard a rotisserie chicken in their spirit. Roast it over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roast it over fire. Its head as well as its legs and its inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn it. Here's how you must eat it. Give you some eating instructions. You must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. Put it in the microwave. It's the Lord's Supper. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I'll execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, God. I thank you for your people, God. I thank you for this gathering, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we would would grow exponentially today, Lord. Um, Father, I pray that your son Jesus would be made known today, God. Um, I I pray that we would see Jesus in a whole new way, God, that that as 
we understand and we listen and we study together, God, I, I pray today, Father, that we would that we would grow in our faith, God, that we would love Jesus like we've never loved him before. And so, Father, I just pray today, God, for clarity and for conviction for your people. I pray for clarity, conviction, and I pray for direction for your people this morning, God. I pray that your spirit will be with us, God. And so we, we invite you in completely and totally this morning, God. Be with us as we study together, Lord. And so, Father, with all the distractions, all the things going on in the world, God, to keep our focus off of you, Father, I pray that in these moments that we have together, you would be our focus, that we would engage with our whole hearts, mind, body, and soul. And so, Father, we thank you today for what you're going to say to your people. I thank you, Father, for the life change that will happen as a result of the preaching of your word. And so, Father, we thank you. We pray this prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. The people of God said amen. You may be seated. From the sermon series, God with us, from the sermon series, God with us, my sermon title this morning is, This Ain't That Type of Party. This Ain't That Type of Party. Americans love holidays. Americans love some holiday. We are some holiday-loving people. We love to celebrate. We, we have so many holidays in this country. We have Christmas and Thanksgiving and Fourth of July and Memorial Day and Labor Day and Veterans Day and Mother's Day and Father's Day. And if you're from the country, Children's Day. We, we have all kinds of days. And depending on the culture you grew up in, family reunions and family get-togethers are just as significant as holidays. And, and I think, I believe that our desire to celebrate even overrides our disposition towards the occasion that we celebrate. Let me, let me tell you what, what I mean. We oftentimes celebrate holidays that we do not believe in or we don't believe in its meaning. Think, think about Christmas. During the Christmas season, even atheists are out buying gifts. Even people who don't declare the name of Jesus and think that we're all crazy and that we should all just be put in a mental institution uh, during Christmas week, the week leading up to Christmas, they are out shopping like the rest of us. Wouldn't Christmas be so much easier to shop if people who didn't believe in Christ just stayed home? Can you imagine how the malls would be and it would be easy? And, and can you imagine if, if the people who are anticipating Christmas in November on that faithful holiday after Thanksgiving that we call Black Friday, can you imagine if they stayed home, how much easier it would be for you to go and get that flat screen TV that's on sale? We, we love to celebrate. We love holidays. We, we even celebrate holidays that we don't even know what the holidays are about. Many of you cannot tell me the difference between Labor Day and Memorial Day. Many of you don't even know the difference. But, but what I think drives our desire to gather and celebrate on those occasions more than the holiday or the occasion itself is the opportunity, number one, to be free from work. Come on, be honest. You like a day off from work and school. Number two, you get to enjoy the people that you love. You get to spend time with people that you don't normally see. You get to be around your family, all of the love that you experience with the people that raised you and the people that you grew up with. We celebrate these times because it gives us an opportunity to enjoy our family and friends. As I'm talking right now, some of you are making Christmas plans in your head. We book flights, we pile up in houses and sleep on couches and sleep on bunk beds and pull out beds out of the wall and all kinds of stuff because we love to celebrate. We, we spend all of this money to get in a car and travel and get rental cars and do all of these things. And some of us, because we're too bougie and sophisticated, we don't want to stay with our family members, so we book a hotel at the cleanest hotel near where the event is happening. And some of us are so sophisticated now that we even get Airbnbs. 
We, we, we do our celebrations at an Airbnb these days, and all of this celebrating that we love to do, all it says is that we are not going anywhere anytime soon. We are about to enjoy this time that we have. But, but then there's another reason many of us love holidays, especially ones like Thanksgiving and Fourth of July. Many, many, many of us love this for one reason. We are willing to brave all of the traffic and go up and be around family members that we know we're going to eventually all out with by the third day that we're near them is because of the food. Come on, be honest. You like Thanksgiving, not because you don't even know what Thanksgiving is about, but you like the dishes that they serve at your grandmother's house. Like you like Fourth of July. You don't know anything about Fourth of July. I really can't explain to anybody, but just the smell of those burgers and dogs on the grill just does something to your spirit. We love to celebrate and all the things that come along with it. We love our family, our free time, and our appetites and the opportunity to kick back and enjoy the celebration. And at the greatest celebration in Israel history, God says, yes, this is a celebration, but this ain't that type of party. What God is talking about is the original and the initial Passover. And in, under, in order to understand the significance of the, of the Exodus itself, of the Exodus story, we must understand from an overview, from a large view, if we must scan back and say, what is Exodus all about? Here's what the book of Exodus is all about. God, in a supernatural way, delivered his people from and brought them into a promised land so that they can serve him and not themselves. Here's what Exodus is about. God supernaturally delivered his people from bondage and brought them into a promised land so that they could serve him. And so this is not just for the people in that story. This is also our story because if you are in Christ, you have experienced your own Exodus. God in a supernatural way through sending his son has delivered you and I from spiritual bondage and brought us to freedom in Christ so that we can be free to serve God. We all have an exodus. This is not just their story, but it's our story. But just like there is in all major historical events and occasions that happens in the life of a person or a group of people in a country or in a nation, there is a defining moment in which marks the occasion that we celebrate. And for him, for them, this moment that God instituted marks and commemorates the exodus of the people of God from slavery to freedom. And this event is called the Passover. The Passover, where God passed over the houses of the people of God that had the blood of an animal on the doorpost on the night when God was executing judgment on every household of the people who enslaved the people of God. And this is why it is called the Passover, because when God saw the blood, he passed over. That's the meaning of the Passover, right? It's important to know how they got to this point that they could have a Passover, but they are on the cusp of being delivered from an 80-year bondage. They were in Egypt for 400-plus years, but they were enslaved for the last 80 of those 400-and-something years. And so over the course of time, God raises up somebody. But I think I need, we need to understand the context because it's kind of like if you walk into the Shawshank Redemption when Tim Robbins is already outside of prison and he's screaming out in the puddle and the lightning is striking and he's free and you walk in on a movie you never saw before, you wouldn't understand what he's celebrating about. But if you saw the story from the beginning, you know a man was enslaved for many, many, many years in prison for many years and he finally got free and then you can appreciate that moment. But you need context. You need to understand the story. And so for the next few minutes, I want to give you context of what is happening in the book of Exodus. God has raised up a leader by the name of Moses to tell his people uh, that they are about to be free. But God tells Moses that I need you to do something for me. I need you to go to the Pharaoh who was the king of Egypt at the time. I need you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go so that they can worship me. 
However, God knows that Pharaoh is going to deny Moses' request and he's not going to let the people go. Why would he do that? Because God has already hardened Pharaoh's heart. But God is not being crazy. God is actually doing something. God is up to something. But Moses is getting discouraged because the first time he even goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh literally says, you know what? Your people are lazy. And just because you asked me to be free to go to worship, I'm going to make it that much harder on you. And so the people are beaten down. They're downtrodden. But God has raised up the leader to tell the people that they are going to be free at some point. And Moses' job is to communicate the word of God to Pharaoh and to the people of God. But Pharaoh is not listening. So here's what God does. God says, okay, I can show you better than I can tell you. Here's what happens. And here's what happens from 6 to 12. God literally sends nine plagues on the people of Egypt. He sends nine plagues on the people of Egypt and on Pharaoh. From from turning water to blood to sending a swarm of frogs all over the entire nation. That didn't work. None of those things worked. Turning water and blood didn't work. Pharaoh said, I'm still not letting them go. He sent all the swarm of frogs all over the nation. Pharaoh still says, I'm not letting them go. Then God sent a swarm of gnats all over the land, over all the people and over all the animals. First of all, time out. Wait a minute. If he would have sent a swarm of gnats anywhere near me, I would have said, y'all can get up out of here. Because I do not like any type of insect flying around. I don't want to eat outside. Some of y'all like to eat outside. I don't want to eat outside because I don't want the bugs in my food. But he sent a swarm of gnats. Still didn't work. Sent a swarm of flies. Still didn't work. He, he sent a, a, a pestilence on the livestock and killed all the livestock. It still didn't work. He sent all of these plagues. He continued to send plagues, a total of nine, and Pharaoh still wouldn't let the people of God go. And it was beyond hope at this point where there was nothing else that could be done. If those nine plagues can't get Pharaoh to let us go, then it's not possible for us to be free. And this is the plight of the people, that they're in bondage. And no matter what they try, no matter what they do, even God's help doesn't seem to set me free. What what is it like to be stuck? You cry out for God's help, and God seemingly tries to help you, but even the help that God brings ain't setting you free. You're still in bondage, still in a struggle, still dealing with this thing. It won't move out of your way. It won't let you go. It seems to have a hold on you. There's no more hope. And this is where they are. But God says, I got one last move. I got one last move. I got one last plague. And I made a promise to you guys that he would let you go at some point. And here's what God says. He says, I'm going to kill all of the firstborn males in the land of Egypt. I'm going to kill every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. Every baby boy that's been born in the land of Egypt, I'm going to kill them. I I know you're thinking this is like some Disney movie. This can't be real. This really wouldn't happen. But this is an actual historical event that actually happened. God literally said, I am going to kill every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. But God made a promise to his people that he was going to let them go. God made this promise to the people and finally God sends this thing, this death angel to go and kill all the firstborn males and guess what happens? Pharaoh calls for and finds Moses and Aaron and tells them he woke up in the middle of the night. I'm sure they said it was screaming all throughout Egypt because people were waking up and their firstborn son was dead. There's all of this pain and anguish, and this was enough to break Pharaoh's will. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron, and he subsequently said, you ain't got to go home, but y'all got to get the heck up out of here. This is what God said. And you're asking, well, why would God do such a thing? This is why I don't really like Christianity. This is why I don't really understand all that New Testament stuff in the Bible. A couple of them Proverbs is all right. A couple of them stories about Jesus cool. But I don't really mess with that God in the Old Testament because he's out there killing babies. He's out there doing all this crazy kind of stuff. And I thought your God was a God of love and he doesn't do that type of stuff. Well, I want you to remember something. At the outset of the book of Exodus, if you go back and read it in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, as soon as this new Pharaoh who has enslaved these people came into power, the first thing that he wanted to do was he said all to all of you Hebrew midwives, wives who help the Israelite women deliver babies, here's what I want you to do. 
it, I want you to observe the child that they have, and if it's a little boy, I want you to kill it. I want you to kill every Israelite firstborn male. If they are Israelite and they're a little boy, I want you to kill it on sight. And so God is not doing anything but having perfect justice. This is not even God returning evil for evil. This is not even God's fault. Because if Pharaoh would have let God's people go the first time he asked, all of these little boys in Egypt would still be alive. Because sin has its consequences. We live in a fallen world and when man makes decisions, it has consequences. And sometimes those consequences are not just personal, they're corporate and they're for a whole nation. This is the importance of leadership. Sometimes your decisions don't just affect you, they affect everybody. And this is what's happening in this text. And so God sends this plague, sends this death. All of the young babies in Egypt are dying and people would say, well, what is the purpose of the plagues? If God ain't taking revenge on Pharaoh, if this is not about revenge, what is the purpose of the plagues? The purpose of the plagues was so Pharaoh and the Egyptians would come to know God. They would see the plagues that God of the Israelites sent to destroy every part of their lives and recognize that the gods that they were worshiping were incapable of stopping it. And with that realization, they would realize that their gods were impotent and did not have the power to give life, nor do they, their gods have the power to save anyone, which means their gods are actually no gods. God's at all. This was about God's glory. God sent those plagues to prove a point that I'm the only living true God and besides me there are no others. And so when the Egyptians saw what God was doing to all of their gods of agriculture and the gods of this and the gods of nature and all of these gods and they would see that they were impotent and powerless to save, they didn't have a decision to make. Would they recognize this one living true God and submit to his authority or not? And this is the decision that every unbeliever has to make. They can look out in creation and ask themselves, am I going to submit to this God or not? But the Egyptians are not the only people that have questions to answer. The Israelites have questions to answer too, and so do we. Will we trust in God's promise to bring deliverance to his people? And I want to show you the first promise that he makes to them about their deliverance. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 through 22 with me. Look at this. This is God's promise to them while they are in bondage, going through stuff. God makes a promise. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, even under the force of a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the miracles that I'll perform in it, after that, he will let you go. This is God's promise to the people that, that, that although you, you experience the bondage right now, although it's painful, you're going through it, you can't get yourself out of it, there's a promise from God that he will let you go. And I'll give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you won't leave empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. You will put them on your sons and daughters. So you will plunder the Egyptians. He literally told the women to ask the other women, the Egyptian women, for their silver and gold jewelry and all of their clothing. He literally said, if there's a sister sitting next to you with a Louis Vuitton bag or a coach bag, ask her for her bag and she'll give it to you. He said, so you will plunder. You will plunder the Egyptians. You, you're going through all of this, but you won't leave empty-handed. You won't leave empty-handed. You will go out with provision. That's important. They will go out with provision. And so God gives them this promise in the midst of what they're going through. And this is a call and an invitation for them to trust God and take him at his word. And the question today is, will you trust him in spite of what you have seen and what you have experienced? Will you trust God? I know it's been difficult and hard at times, and you may not feel like you can hold on another day. I know that somebody listening to this sermon is sitting right in that spot where you don't know if you can keep this thing going. And God says, will you trust me? And will you trust me and keep to, to, for me to keep my word? This is what God is asking us today. Will we trust him and take him at his word? Whatever we may deal with, big and small, no matter what we struggle with, no matter what the sin is, the temptation, the weakness, the invitation, it's for us to trust God today. What area of your life that's been beating you down, 
but you've been afraid and don't have the courage to trust God. This is an opportunity to see his word and make a decision to believe it and to trust it. And part of their trust that they did not understand was that this was an invitation for them to prepare. That this was actually an invitation for the Israelites to make room in their lives through obedience to God and his word. He says, hey, when you get ready to leave, ask them for their stuff. You will have favor with them. Ask them for their stuff. You will have provision. And so God is saying, obey me, trust me, do what I tell you to do, and it will work out. And we have to prepare ourselves to do what God tells us to do because if God is giving us instructions, it's for our good and for his glory. God never gives us instructions that are pointless and don't have meaning. And so if God says something in his word, it is for us to then say, God, God, help me to obey your word and trust you with the, with the results. But the problem is for us is that we are afraid to prepare because we have control problems. We, we want to be control of our whole lives. We want to go where we want to go and do what we want to do when we want to do it. And we don't want anybody to tell us what to do, including God. But God calls us to trust him by preparing this was a call for them not to neglect the opportunity to prepare for God to get the glory out of their lives. Whenever God tells us to obey, God is preparing us for something. God is getting us ready for something. They don't realize this. God is saying, trust me, trust my promises, but you got to do what I tell you before you see the outcome of it. Just trust me at, at my word. This is what faith is all about. If you are struggling with a thing, if you can't walk away from a thing, if there's something going on in your life that's distracting you and your relationship from God with God, you must trust God and take him at his word knowing that God's results will be far better than any results that we could achieve on our own this is what's happening in the text so before God makes the move for their eventual exodus he gives Moses and Aaron instructions about how to prepare for the celebration that is to take place before the exodus he, he gives them instructions on how to prepare for the celebration and so verses one through four we'll look at the preparation for their Passover. Look at verses 1 through 4 in Exodus chapter 12. Look, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to the father's family, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house ought to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each one will eat. And so he says this Exodus event, this, this Passover is where you will mark a new beginning for you as a people of God. And so this pivotal, this pivotal moment will mark their brand new calendar year. This will mark the beginning of your year. It is a new beginning for you when God will save you, when God will deliver you. I have a friend, a brother in Christ. He texts me every year in December, and he texts me, Happy Salvation Day, because he knows that I got saved in December of 1997. And so every mid-December, around the 13th or the 14th, he texts me this day, and I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And then I remind, he reminds me, and I remember, oh, I was born in April of 82, but I was really born in December of 97. So that actually makes me younger than 39. I just worked that math out of my head right here as I'm talking to you. I'm like, oh, really? I'm not really that old. I was actually born in 97. How old would that make me? 25? What does that make me? 25? Y'all don't, don't, don't know math. Never ask y'all math questions ever again in the middle of a sermon. This is not the church for that. But it marks the beginning for them. This is how important it is. But he gives them specific instructions. He says, tell the whole community of Israel. Why would he say this? Because their salvation is not an individual salvation. It's a corporate one. It speaks to the necessity and importance of community. That when God saved you, his intention was not for you to be by yourself. But his intention was for you to experience his salvation in the context of other people. And he tells them that they are to share a meal together. Every father, every man, every father, the head of the household, is to go and prepare an animal for his family. 
And if there was a house next door, a neighbor next door, you lived in a house, it was just you by yourself, or it was two people, and there was one animal that you had to eat, and one animal was too much for two people to eat in one sitting, you had to go to your neighbor's house because the instructions were very specific. Because if there was an animal to be eaten, it had to be cleaned. The whole plate had to be cleaned. There could not be any leftovers. This is instruction. So I want the whole community to eat together. This, this is a community affair because we don't get saved by ourselves. We get saved corporately. And when you get saved, God engrafts you into the body of Christ, not the body of you. Speaks to the importance of community. And this is what he's telling them this. That this isn't an individual exodus, exodus. It is a corporate exodus. This is also a reminder of how we feel when we do the Lord's Supper together. When we take the Lord's table together. When we eat the bread and drink of the wine together. This is a picture of that. But we are supposed to do it together. And so he tells them that this is a community affair. But then there are even more specific instructions. That the, the, the meat that you are to prepare can't be just any ordinary meat. This can't come from the, I won't name names of certain grocery stores. This has to come from Publix. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I want to so bad, but I'm not. I don't want to ruin any sponsorships that I may have in the future. <laughs> he wants them to prepare a perfect sacrifice. Look at verses 5 through 7. It's so important. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. At this time, a lamb or a sheep or a goat, a year old, been an adult, been an adult at this point. But he needs to be unblemished. You may take it either from the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. Real quick, why do they sacrifice animals? The sacrificial system was just a way for man to renew his relationship with God. And so if a person wanted to totally commit themselves to God and they were willing to give their lives, die to themselves and give their lives to God, the worshiper would then get an animal, bring the animal to be slaughtered and the animal would stand in the place of the person who was saying, God, take me here. I am. My life is yours. So they use animals for that. And then there were subsequent sin offerings and guilt offerings and burnt offerings, all to reconnect and renew a relationship with the worshiper and God. But the animal was to stand in the place of the worshiper. The animal was actually what we would call a substitute. The animal stood in the place of the person. And so he says, grab sheep or a goat, unblemished, a year old male. And so we, we think about the sacrifice. You're like, that sounds strange. I would never do this. But remember what Paul told us in Romans. Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And so we still offer sacrifices. We offer ourselves in worship to God, saying, God, this life is not my own. This is your life. And so I offer myself as a sacrifice to you. So it's not strange but what's also important about this sacrifice, stay with me here, was the spirit behind the matter. You couldn't bring God any kind of sacrifice. You, you just couldn't bring God something that you had no use for. You couldn't bring God something that you didn't want. You couldn't bring God the thing that you were going to give away anyway. You, you couldn't bring God your leftovers. You couldn't bring God the clothes that you were going to give to Salvation Army anyway. No, you had to bring God your first and your best. So the spirit behind it mattered to God. Remember Cain and Abel? One was accepted, one wasn't. Why? Because one bought an offering that came from his heart. It was acceptable to God. And so you could, you had to bring God a special type of offering and a sacrifice. And we must let that serve as a reminder to ourselves, stop bringing God just any old kind of worship. And so he says, keep it till the 14th day of the month. That would have given them time to get acclimated with the little lamb and the little sheep or whatever it was, they would have had time to spend some time with it. It would have actually became a part of them. It would have been like a brother. They would have identified with this lamb for keeping it for so many days. You know, some of y'all got pets. Some of y'all treat y'all pets like they're y'all children. Not going to name no names. Y'all post them on social media. Watch you do little tricks and stuff. Yep. But you identify with this animal. He's a part of the family. And this is what he's saying. Keep it for a few days. Get used to it. Identify with it. 
identify with this perfect, unblemished animal. And all of this is pointing to something. Take the blood and put it on the two doorposts once you slaughter the animal at twilight and put it on the door frame. Why did he tell him to do this? Because this is pointing to something. Because something, in order for sin to have to be forgiven, in order for sin to be looked over, Something has to die. Why would you say that, Pastor? Because the text, the scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. God doesn't just look over sin. God doesn't just bypass sin. God doesn't have this haphazard relationship with sin. If somebody sins, something has to die. The wages of sin is death. And so for an animal to die, it foreshadows something. Because unfortunately, they had to keep making sacrifices over and over and over again. Because the sacrifice of animals were not worthy to cover sin once and for all. It's pointing to something. Hebrews 10, 3-4 tells us something. Hebrews 10, 3-4 says this, but in the sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bull and ghosts to take away the sins. Okay, well, if it's impossible, why do they keep doing it? Because it's pointing to something. It's pointing to a better sacrifice, a more perfect sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Jesus. Jesus alone was sinless and uniquely qualified to be the sacrifice for us. And so in John, in John chapter 1, verse 29, saw Jesus. What does John yell out? The look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is this un blemish lamb his his blood that was shed on the cross has saved us and turned away the wrath of God but his blood not only saves us it also satisfies the penalty and the debt that we owe to God our sin has a debt that it has to be paid and Jesus's blood has not just saved us but it has also satisfied the penalty which is his very life first Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 19 he doesn't just save and satisfy he does something else first peter 1 18 through 19 for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors not with perishable things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb and so what does that mean it means he saves he satisfies but he also sanctifies he cleanses us. He sets us apart. He cleanses us and sets us apart. And so it saves. His blood saves, it satisfies, and it also sanctifies. But it does something else. It's the gift that just keeps on giving. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 14. Stay with me. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve? So it saves, it satisfies, it sanctifies so that we can serve. Oh, the blood works. It has power, it saves, it satisfies, it sanctifies so that we can serve. It saves, satisfies, and sanctifies so that we can serve. What do you mean? The blood had a price, it had a value. That's why Paul says, you are not your own for you are bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus. You do not belong to you, but you belong to one to, to another. And so God's redemption, God buying us back, his redemption always brings us from and into. It brings us from something and into something. I say this every Sunday. God didn't just save you to save you. God didn't just free you to free you. He freed you so that you can be free to serve him. And so... With that being said, if the blood does all that, to not be ready and available for his service anytime, any place, anywhere, is to misunderstand the totality of what the blood has done for us. See, it's deeper than just your sins being forgiven. If you just say, on my time, at my pace, whenever I get ready, my way or the highway, then you truly don't understand the totality of what the blood of Jesus has done for you and what it meant. It is more than just you having your little stinking sins forgiven, but God has brought you with a price. You are not your own. You belong to him. And so it is his time, his way or the highway, not yours. God has saved us so that we can serve. But if you say, you know what, 
I got to do it my way. If, you, if you're not ready to move at God's pace and you're not ready to move at a moment's notice, not based on your feelings, it has to be based on the efficacy of the blood. Either the blood works or it doesn't. And so every time you say, I'm going to do this on my terms and my way, you deny the reality and the power of the blood of Jesus. The blood is just deeper than your sins being forgiven. And so in God's instructions for the Passover, if you notice anything in this text, he adds a sense of urgency. He adds a sense of urgency. He tells them how to eat and prepare the food because he wants them to do it in haste. Look at verses 8 through 11. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it. Roast it over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roast it over fire. Its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until the morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn it. Somebody needs to highlight that in the Bible. If it's left over, you got to burn it. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Sandals on your feet. Staff in your hand. Eat it in a hurry. It's the Lord's Passover. So he gives them this, these instructions. Why would he say roast it? Because roasting it, making a rotisserie out of it, was the fastest way for it to be cooked, and you can still eat it. You don't even need to pull out your pots and pans. Don't pull out your best china. Don't pull out your best stuff. Just roast it, and let's have at it. Matter of fact, I want you to get the unleavened bread. I don't have time for you to do leavened bread with the yeast in it. That takes too long to bake. It takes hours, and then you got to put some icing all over it and prepare it and do all that kind of stuff. No, I want you to eat unleavened bread where you can heat it up real quick and eat it on the move. Expediency. God wants them to go fast, and God is trying to get them to minimize time wasted and maximize preparedness he wants them to be able to move verse 10 you must not leave any of it until the morning any part of it left until the morning you got to burn it you got to put on your shoes be dressed for travel and your staff in your hand eat it in a hurry there's a fundamental thing that I love about family gatherings and family reunions and Thanksgiving and Christmas and 4th of July and Memorial Day the, the, the most best entertaining the most underrated part of the whole experience of a family gathering is the to-go plate the to-go plate is the real mvp the to-go plate is the greatest thing ever created you you know there have been many fights and wars over to-go plates you you know that it has people have fell out and don't speak for 20 years over to-go plate you know you like a to-go plate why because it tastes better the second day it tastes better. To say, it just does. And God is like, no, I need you to eat everything and don't have anything left over. Don't pull out your Tupperware. Don't bring your cooler over my house trying to stuff my chicken and my potato salad to take back home to your kids to have food to eat for the rest of the week. That there will be no leftovers. I know it tastes better on the second day, but this ain't that type of party. This is an eat it now or don't eat it all. Matter of fact, he told them if there was a miscalculation in the preparation and the meat was left over, I want you to burn it. I don't want anything to be left over for them to go to get a to-go plate or to pull out their Tupperware would have been a demonstration of a lack of faith in God's provision for where he was taking them. They thought we need to take these leftovers and God is like, no, you don't need to take leftovers because if you take leftovers, you're really communicating to me that you don't trust me to provide for you for where you're going. Now, mind you, when he did bring about the deliverance in the Exodus, Moses had told them before that they would find favor with the Egyptians, that if they asked them for silver or gold, they would just hand it over to them. And this is exactly what happened. But before it actually happened, they had to trust God's word. And so this Passover meal was not about substance or sustenance. It was about observance of what God was about to do. Don't take nothing and leave everything behind. And unfortunately, many of us have a to-go plate from everywhere we've been. Some of us eat that to-go plate 
after the second day. But how many of you know, there comes a point in time where you just got to get rid of the place in the room before you just got to get out. Just clean out your refrigerator. It's December 13th. You still got yams, ham, smoked turkey, fried chicken is soggy, mashed potatoes is stiff, potato salad is green now, but you're still holding on. And some of us are laughing. Some of us still have to go plates in our hearts because we refuse to trust in God's provision. And why is God saying, don't take nothing with you, leave everything behind? Because God was not just concerned about them getting out of Egypt. He was trying to get Egypt out of them. Because sometimes you can leave a place and it still be in you. I'm moving to Atlanta. Orlando is still in you. I'm going to L.A. You know what? You might go to L.A., but the city you're still in is still in you. And so you got to empty yourself of this stuff. And this is what God is trying to do. Before I take you to the promised land, I got to get Egypt out of you, so don't take nothing with you. I need you to prepare. And you prepare by being obedient. Don't get comfy. Don't get cozy. Don't take a load off. Don't kick off your feet. Don't make yourself right at home. Eat this meal with your shoes on. And how many of us have taken our shoes off in places where we should have left them on? And this is what God is saying. Get ready to bounce. Get up out of here. This ain't that type of party. This ain't at your grandmother's house. This is not your mother's house. This is not the family reunion. This is a different kind of celebration. This is one that's on the move. And so here's what God is saying. If you don't hear anything else, prepare and partake of the Passover PDQ. Prepare and partake of the Passover pretty darn quick. Be ready to move. If God asks you to do something today, would you be able to move when he asks you to move? And this is the dilemma. Now I want to say this as I'm closing. There's a psychology in this, and I, I get it. They've been here for 400 plus years. This is home. They've been enslaved for 80 of it. They're, they're home. And here's the thing. I can't imagine that if they built their life in a place for all of these years, that it would be easy for them to move. And so you may say, well, they were in bondage. They should have been ready to go. It's not that easy, and you know that. Because you can be in bondage and the bondage still be home to you. Some of us are so comfortable in bondage, we don't even really want to see what it's like on the other side. So they have to deal with this. This is a radical change for them to leave suddenly and go to a place that you've never placed your eyes on. You know what that takes? Trust. To not have all the details work out and still have to go. This is what God asks us to do every time he asks us to obey his word. To trust him. And So the exodus is about God bringing his people out. But before that happened, they had to be ready and prepare. That they had to hold loosely to what they had. They had to be ready to give up everything and walk away. And going elsewhere is always harder than staying put. Think about what you have been stuck in in your life at some point And how hard it has been for you to break away. But the good news is there's power in Jesus. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can walk away from that thing too. That God has an exodus for you and I. That yeah, yeah, maybe you may not be in physical bondage, but if you bear the name of Jesus, you've been in spiritual bondage before. And he's had to deliver us out of it. That we've been in sin before, but God has made a way for us. And this is what the Passover is all about. When we get to verses 12 through, through 13, he talks about the Passover event happening. And when you put the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over. And the interesting thing is, is that God didn't just go to the house of the Egyptians. 
He went to everybody's house. Because the Egyptians didn't have a monopoly on sin. The scripture says, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus says, unlike the Egyptians, I've made a way for you. That the wages of sin does not have to be death for you. But that through my blood, there can be life. The blood is so powerful, it turns away death. That, that it gives us life and satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, meaning he has atoned for our sins. He has covered our sins and turned away God's wrath from us. And we are no longer enemies of God, but we are friends of God because of the blood of Jesus. And so the Exodus is not just their story. It is our story. That God has set us free. The Passover is about being delivered from death by a perfect substitute whose blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sin. That spiritual death is brought about by sin and is not coming to us for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You have life in Jesus. But you may be alive today and not in a real covenant relationship with Jesus and you may say, I feel alive, but really you are a dead man walking. But Jesus has made a way. He's made a way for us. But we must trust him. And so the Passover is a celebration about God's deliverance and bringing his people from death to life, from bondage to freedom. But they had to be prepared to go. And my question today to you is what are you afraid to let go of? How has God called you to prepare for what's next? Do you truly think by holding on to something that is stopping you from experiencing the fullness of God is really worth it? God was taking them to a promised land where they will be free to serve him and worship him freely. But as long as we stay in Egypt and are afraid to leave when God calls us, we'll never experience the freedom that we long for. But that freedom is found in the blood of Jesus. Life is found in the blood of Jesus. But we must be prepared and ready when he calls us. What has God asked of you? What has God placed before you that you've been afraid to do because you're afraid to trust. And so today is the invitation for you to trust God. Today's the day for you to walk in freedom that God calls you to. You don't need to know the details. You don't need to know the what, when, where, how. All you need to do is take God at his word. His provision is there for you just like it was for the Egyptians. Well, I'm not strong enough. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not equipped enough. I don't have a rich family. I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have the ed education. God is saying, just be obedient to me right where you are. And I'll make a way for you. And this is what he calls us to today. And my question to you today is, will you trust God? Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.